Amen. Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11. Wow, it is so good to see a well-attended gathering on a Sunday morning. You know, after being divided into multiple services for so long, you know, I, I just am so delighted to have everybody together again. And I know that there's many that are joining us still online um, for various reasons, health reasons, concerns, things of that nature. But, you know, it is good to be in the house of the Lord on such a special day. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 here this morning. And the title of the message to, uh, this morning is, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And let me start by just asking a question and asking you to consider and think about something here with me. Have you ever, in all of your life, witnessed something that was so amazing, so incredible, so unbelievable that you scratched possibly be true? You witnessed it, but your eyes could be deceiving you. They must be deceiving you because this is absolutely mind-blowing. You know, I think of as a kid, anybody ever watched David Copperfield when they were young? Anybody? A few of you. Okay. I remember watching this special on TV with David Copperfield where he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And I remember sitting there as a kid. Of course, all this is on TV. So, I mean, there's sadness saying, how could this possibly be true? Or, or maybe it's street magic. You know, I, I've been out in some pretty interesting places and you encounter people that, that are doing tricks and they're making things appear in your pockets when you're like a long ways away and you're scratching your head and you're wondering, how in the world could this possibly be true? You know, there's certain times in life when we encounter truths that are so fantastic, so amazing, that we find ourselves questioning what it was that we, in fact, just witnessed. And, you know, our text here this morning in John chapter 11 contains such a story. You know, as we look at the text, we see the setting here in the first few verses, and we find that there was a certain man of Bethany in verse 1, a certain man of Bethany who was ill. His name was Lazarus. You know, Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. We probably heard about Mary and Martha. They were such a special pair of sisters that loved Jesus. They served Jesus. They consumed his teaching. They had an appetite for anything that Jesus had to say. They were hungry. They were eager. They were followers. But not only did they love Jesus, they were loved by Jesus. You know, I find it interesting that, that Jesus not only loved people in the global sense. I mean, we all think of Jesus, you know, for, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loved us so much. Jesus loved us and that he desired to save us. But Jesus had genuine relationships. This sweet couple was, was a recipient of Jesus' love in a way that was special, in a way that was unique, in a way that was treasured. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were loved by Jesus. Jesus sought to know them. Jesus sought to be known by them. His love for them was familial. It was deep. So when the sisters sent word to Jesus in verse 3, saying the one whom you love is sick. 
I imagine that they expected the response of Jesus to be immediate, right? Jesus certainly, being, being one who is capable of healing, is going to drop everything that he's doing and run to their aid and care for the one whom he loves, right? His response, I, mu- I imagine, must have been somewhat surprising. As Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It's as almost as if Jesus was downplaying the seriousness of what was about to occur. But you know, for Mary and Martha, I have acquired immediate attention. Their eyes were blinded by their grief as they said, something is desperately wrong with Lazarus. We need Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can help us. And Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. You know, from an earthly perspective, if we're all being honest with the way that we look at our lives, we, we tend to see the urgent. And oftentimes as we gaze at the urgent and in blindness over what we're experiencing right now, we fail to acknowledge the bigger picture of what it is that God desires to do in the midst of this situation. You know, what God is about to call them to in this situation is to see it with lenses that are acutely focused on a vantage point that enables us to see his purposes, enables us to see his power, and enables us to see his glory. You know, as we step back and we think about this situation, if we're being really honest, brothers and sisters, we are, too, are, are far too comfortable operating in the tyranny of the urgent. And, you know, the urgency of our lives is oftentimes defined by the values that we hold most dear and not the purposes of a sovereign God and all that he has for us in the midst of our trials. We're we're desperate for God to move now. We are eager to see immediate results. We're impatient as we beg for the fulfillment of our passions, our desires, our agenda. And in all of this, what is God seeking to do? Well, what was God seeking to do in the lives of this dear family whom he genuinely loved? He cared about them. Why would Jesus, knowing the pain that was coming for this sweet family, choose to allow for such a difficult tragedy to occur? His answer comes in the latter part of verse 4, and we see it in our text here this morning. It is for the glory of God, he says, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. You know, Jesus didn't have to go to Bethany to heal the one whom he loved. He didn't. Rather, he had to go to Bethany so that the people whom he loved would see and would know the very power of God. And this was more important to him than mere physical healing. This was more impactful than mere earthly gratification. This would have implications that would be far more reaching than simply easing the suffering. Jesus' desire, Jesus' passion, Jesus' purpose was eternal in its scope. And as Jesus expressed his purpose to his disciples, I imagine that there was a bit of head scratching that took place. Couldn't Jesus still reveal his glory by healing this man whom he loved? Couldn't he do it? Nonetheless, Jesus lingered for two more days, the scripture says. In the days that followed, the situation with his dear friend progresses. Verse 15 records both the trial and the purpose of Jesus' delay. 
says, Lazarus has died. He's passed. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. That's what he desired for them. So that you may believe. He wanted them to have eyes of faith. I, I imagine in that moment, they're probably thinking, believe what, Jesus? You know what? We gave up everything and are following you. Does that not evidence our hearts of faith? We're with you. We've always been with you. What in the world, God? Jesus was seeking to broaden their view of what the Messiah came to do. He wanted them to see it. And this brings us to our first point here this morning. Jesus' purpose was to be known and to be known in a way that was more than simply head knowledge. Jesus' desire in the facts about his unique character and calling. Jesus' passion was to be known. He wanted them to experience his power to transform. He wanted them to know the peace that surpasses all human understanding. He wanted them to embrace the radical mission that he had for them that would encompass all of life. That required something special. That required more than mere healing. And you know, the reality, brothers and sisters, is that God allowed for the trial in John 11 in order that the character of his son might be fully revealed. He wanted them to see Jesus in a way that was unique and special. He wanted them to connect with who he was. God allowed for the suffering in order that they might experience the full weight of his glorious existence. God allowed for the pain in order that they might believe, which is the purpose of John's writing. In John chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. How is the Father and the Son most glorified? Well, by acknowledging the central existence. A preeminence might be a word that you haven't heard before. It might be a word that's foreign to you. That's a big one. But you know, when I, when I think about preeminence, I have to think about it in comparison to the word prominence. You know, if I'm proud of my kids, what am I likely to put on my mantle? Pictures of my kids, right? Trophies dedicated to sports that they competed in, things that I'm proud of. I'm giving them a prominent place. But if you walk into my house, and the first thing you're greeted by is a shrine to my oldest son, Ethan, you're like, wow, something is uniquely different in this house. There is more than a prominent place for his son. There is a, a worship. There is a preeminence. Everything seems to revolve around him. This is crazy. You know, when I think about this idea of preeminence, it's saying, you know what? Everything else, that's white noise. The only thing that matters is Jesus. How do we glorify the Father and the Son? By acknowledging his centrality and his preeminence. By recognizing that he's the only thing that matters. For Mary and Martha, it was recognizing that Jesus and his authority and his leadership and his glory was more important than healing their brother. Yes, their hearts were hurting. But Jesus desired to be known in a very unique way. 
He desired to be preeminent. You know, it's interesting that every one of the names that Jesus uses to describe himself in the Gospels is intended to give us, his followers, an understanding of his inexpressible power and a deeper understanding of the boundless dimensions of his existence. You think about it as we go through the Gospel of John. We find in John 1, Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God. Get your head around that concept. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning. With God, all things were made by Him. The living, breathing Word of God. Without Him was not anything that was made. made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You know, Jesus is the living, breathing Word of God. And in Jesus, we find the power to create the power to sustain. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. Everything we see, the complexity of everything that we experience in this world is held together by the word of Jesus' power. And he desires for us to know him in this way. He is the living water as he's meeting with the woman at the well and she's chasing after all of these different things that she's hoping will satisfy her life. Jesus says, I am the one thing that will satisfy you. Come to the well that I am offering you and your, your thirst will be eternally quenched in me. I will satisfy your soul for all eternity. Power to give spiritual nourishment. Power to satisfy. But not only that, Jesus is the bread of life in John 6. He's the bread of life. He is the power to feed our souls. There is power in his divine sufficiency. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Power to illuminate, power to guide us to the Father, power to help us to see clearly. He is the good shepherd in John 10. Power to protect, power to provide, power to seek and save. Jesus is the door to the sheepfold in John chapter 10. Power to grant entrance into the kingdom. Power to deny. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14. Power to lead. Power to inspire. Power to give life, both physical and spiritual. Jesus is stain. Power to produce fruit. Power to grant meaning to our existence. And you know, just as Jesus was seeking to reveal himself to his followers throughout the Gospels, so is he seeking to reveal himself to us here this morning. And this ought to energize our souls, brothers and sisters. He wanted Mary and Martha to see him in a very special way. He wants us to see him in a very special way. And now in John 11, Jesus is about to make yet another claim. And let's look at verse 17 together. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and she met him. But Martha remained, oh, but Mary rather, remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You know, as their hearts were undoubtedly broken and crushed over the loss of their brother, they were grieving, they were hurting. Jesus is faithful to remind them of who he was, who he is as he was in their midst. And Jesus declares in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, in making such a claim, what was it that Jesus was declaring to them? Think about that for a second. I am the resurrection and the life. He's basically saying, in me is the power of God over both life and death. In me. In me alone is hope for an eternal future. In me alone, the grieving heart is going to find its comfort. In me, the broken heart would be mended. Furthermore, by faith in me alone would be the gateway to life unimaginable. Martha, I'm the resurrection. I am the life. I am the only way. Martha, I am enough. I'm enough. Martha, I ought to be the one that satisfies your soul forever. I know you're hurting. I know you. I want you to see me. I am Martha. I am everything that you need. I am here to minister to your soul. I'm here to guide. I'm here to strengthen. You know, Jesus desired for Martha and all of the onlookers, including his disciples, to see him in the midst of their trial and to recognize that he was their only hope. You know, brothers and sisters, I I just want to take a second to say, you know, there's a lot of people here today whose lives have perhaps been decimated by pain and anguish over the course of this last season that we've all been living through. Maybe God's been, 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 been bringing trials into your life that you're scratching your head and saying, what are you trying to do, God? Maybe it's a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's career issues. Maybe it's joblessness. Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's financial instability. Maybe even worse, maybe it's financial ruin. Maybe you're broke, confused, hurting, struggling to see what it is that God is trying to do. Now, for those of us who have embraced Jesus and are living our lives to the best of our abilities for his honor and glory, then the call in the midst of trial is lean into me. Love you, recognize that I care about you. Recognize that I'm desiring to minister to your soul and find your strength in me. But for those who've yet to do that, Jesus' invitation is simple. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He desires to give you life. He desires to give you salvation. He desires to atone for your sin. He desires to enable you to walk and live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. And if that's you this morning, the way is simple. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved and you too can know and experience the life that comes through knowing Jesus. 
You know, because truthfully, brothers and sisters, when I see Jesus like this, when I view Jesus in the scope of his preeminence and I see all of the, all of the attributes and the characteristics of God in Jesus, then I'm able to look at my situation with a different lens. I'm able to grab hold of the truth that God has ordained this situation in my life. No matter how difficult, no matter how painful, no matter how pitiful, I know that God is in it. I know that God desires to use it. I know that God is seeking to grow me through it. And I learn to love it. Even though it hurts. And this is joy. This is what he's calling Mary and Martha to. Joy. He wants them to experience it. And this enables me. When I'm able to grab hold of the truth that God has ordained the situation, this enables me to thank him for it. To look at my situation and say, yes, God, this is awful and miserable, but I love you. And I know that you're in it. Thank you, God, because I know that this work in my life is producing a far greater work in me. That if all you did was make my life easy, I would never see. If all you did was, was give me everything I want, then God, I'd be blind to the bigger work. So thank you, God, for doing this work, even though it hurts. I grab hold of the truth. I thank God for the situation. I forgive by releasing my pain, by releasing my frustration, by releasing my anger, by releasing my need to control. I lay down my arms and I'm ready, God, to follow you. And then I ask, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? God, help me to be teachable. Help me to be moldable. Help me to learn. Help me to listen to your voice. And lastly, how can I obey you? I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, this, this is more than a clever outline. Grab hold, thank God, forgive. Outline that I quote more than this very outline. Why? Because it's nourishment to my soul and it keeps my heart anchored in a reality that no matter how difficult life might get, no matter how many challenges, no matter how many things in my crazy old house decide to break, God is doing something special. Grab hold, thank God, forgive, ask, ask, and watch God do a work in your heart. You know, as Jesus finishes his discourse with Martha, the text says in verse 28 that she went and called for her sister, Mary. And let's look at this together. Verses 28 through 36. And we're going to move into our second point. John 11, verses 28 to 36. When she had said this, she went and she called her sister, Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly. She went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus was weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and was greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
You know, it's here in this text that we see our second main point this morning. And that's Jesus' heart to heal the broken. You know, Jesus loved this family dearly. We've already established that in verse 3. He whom you loved. This, this family felt a closeness to Jesus and a closeness in such a way that when their hearts were desperate, when their trials were crushing them, Jesus was the first one that they wanted to pursue. There was a closeness. You know, it was Mary who anointed Jesus' feet. She worshipped him as her supreme treasure. No gift of extravagance was too great for this Jesus. The one whom she valued. She acknowledged him as her supreme sacrifice by anointing him the way that she did in John chapter 12. And we're not going to look at it. But she was demonstrating an understanding that the one whom she loved must die. <laughs> Remember the words of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, but Martha cared for Jesus too. She knew that his presence would make a difference. She knew that he was their hope for deliverance from their very present trial. And yet sadly, in Martha's initial pursuit, her heart ran after that which was fleeting and temporal. Martha had much to learn from this tragedy. Mary had much to learn from this tragedy. You see, brothers and sisters, when Mary and Martha looked at their world, what they saw was their kingdom crumbling. They saw the one whom they loved being taken in death. And what they craved was for the Son of God to come into their kingdom that was broken and hurting and make it right again. And sadly for many, this is how we think of the gospel. And this is how we hope God is going to minister in our hearts. We look at our marriages and we say, my marriage is a mess. Jesus, come into my marriage and make it work again. My job, I hate it, God. Jesus, come into my job and make me love it. Make me rich. Help me to find fulfillment. My, my miserable family life, God, send Jesus into my miserable family life and make it work again and bring peace. It's as if we're saying, Jesus, come into my mess and make it right. You know, this isn't the message of the gospel. And this is most certainly not the message of Jesus to this dear family. Even if body would one day again perish. Jesus' desire was so much bigger than that. He wanted them to know the way to the Father. He wanted to open their eyes to the truth. Jesus' passion was to give them spiritual life that would transcend the pains of earthly death. Jesus' desire for them was to pluck them out of their messy kingdom and transfer them into the domain of his beloved son where he lives and he reigns and his purposes are supreme for all eternity. You know, this was the true healing that Jesus was about to offer them. This is what Jesus desired to do in the midst of their trial. This was the only way to heal their broken hearts, and Jesus longed for them to see that. And you see, while Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close to Jesus in an earthly way, Jesus desired for them to really know him. And the scripture says that Jesus was deeply moved by their grief. Verse 33 and 35, it says that Jesus wept. You know, the, the hurting masses moved him. The brokenness of this situation greatly troubled him. Why? Well, Hebrews 4.15. He was an all point without sin. Jesus hurt like we hurt. 
Jesus felt as we feel. Jesus was grieved as we grieve. Jesus knows perfectly what we're going through. This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You know, in seeking to reveal his glory, Jesus was desiring to draw them to himself as the only way to true and lasting joy, joy that would transcend their sorrows. He was seeking to heal them and lead them to a new life, lead them to a new way, lead them to a new perspective, a new way of thinking, a new way of looking at their difficulties. And you know, this brings us to our final point here this morning. And this is the main point in our text. Jesus' mission to reveal his preeminence. Jesus is looking to reveal himself in a very special way to them, in a way that would open their eyes. You know, the scripture says in verse 38 that Jesus approached the tomb and then he commanded the stone to be moved in verse 39. You know, Martha, this is kind of a funny section in this text, I think. You know, Martha's still struggling with the faith that Jesus is calling her to in this moment. And, and Martha says, Lord, it's going to stink <laughs> of all the things to say, right? You're taking, the, you're taking the stone away. He's been in there four days. He's ripe. <laughs> it's going to smell. You're not going to want to go through this, Lord. Lord, by this time, there will be an odor. Martha had a hard time seeing a God who is infinitely bigger than the trial. Martha had a hard time envisioning the solution. After all, he was dead. Jesus must have known that. Martha was so blinded by her grief that she struggled to see the glory of God through eyes of faith. And you know, the text says at this point that they took away the stone and then Jesus lifted up his eyes unto heaven. And Jesus' prayer in verse 41 is so special to me. I love reading this because I see some really key things that jump out to us at, at this, in this prayer. You know, first thing I see is Jesus' heart of thankfulness. Gratitude in the midst of grief. He says, Father, thank you that you have heard me. Thank you, God, that you have heard me. Gratitude in the midst of grief. You know, I, I think of my own heart and how many times am I willing in the midst of my trial to lift my eyes to heaven and to thank God for hearing me, for, for listening, to, for attending to my needs, for caring for me in such a special way. You know, Jesus had this heart of gratitude. Thank you, God, that you have heard. Full assurance in the midst of calamity, in the midst of what the world would say. This is kind of a chaotic situation. God, Jesus, Jesus had full assurance. I know that you always hear me, he says. You always hear me. You know what? In the midst of my trial, God, I know you're there. You may not always answer in the way that I like because you know my heart better than I know it myself. But God, you always hear me. You listen. You're attentive to my needs. You care. Jesus had full confidence, full assurance in the midst of his calamity. I know that you always hear me. You always hear me. You always answer. Your ways are always perfect. You are ever faithful. But not only that, Jesus had a fervency. Even with full assurance, he still prayed. Why? You know, that we might see the glory of the Father on full display in the Son. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Jesus longed for them to see. And that was the reason for the pain. That was the purpose for the trial. That was his passion for them all along. And you might be asking yourself, in this season of lament, you might be saying, why God? What are you situation is? What is your reason, God, for allowing me to have to endure through such pain? Well, I'm going to submit to you here this morning that perhaps God is more interested in healing your heart than he is in changing your earthly situation. Think about that for a second. He may be more interested in healing your heart than he is about changing your earthly situation. Because sometimes our earthly situation is an obstacle and a barrier to to coming to him with the right heart, to coming to him in a heart of faith and a, a mindset that understands and sees all that he's doing through the right eternal lens. Maybe God is more interested in healing your heart than he is about changing your earthly situation. Perhaps God is far more passionate about tearing down idols in your heart than he is about giving you more of what you think you want. Sometimes God's, God brings the trials in our heart to reveal the idols. He brings the trials. He brings the pain so that, so that we can see more clearly those things that have, that have taken up space on the mantle. When God is saying, I want to be treasured. I want to be loved. I want to be adored. Why? Because at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why in the world would you ever want to go back to that mud hole? When I'm giving you a clear and crisp and refreshing spring that will nourish your soul for all eternity. God is more passionate about tearing down idols than he is about giving me more of what I think I want. Perhaps God is in the business of reshaping my broken worldview. Maybe God's bringing the trial into your life because you've allowed certain things to take preeminence. You put yourself on display instead of seeking to glorify his name. And God is looking to reshape your worldview. Maybe God is trying to get you to think in a different way. And God is bringing the trial to help you learn, to help you grow. Perhaps God would rather I be broke and joyful than rich and happy. I mean, there's a consideration for you. And there is a difference. Happiness is contingent on circumstance, but joy is an enduring state of peace and acceptance that overpowers my circumstance. When I say peace, I'm not saying there's an absence of conflict here. As long as we're living in a broken world, there's going to be sin. There's going to be offenses, even with people that I love, even with people that I love. And sometimes the people that I love take the worst of it. No, but my my peace comes in my relationship with God when I recognize everything comes at his hand and it is gracious, it is loving, and it is good, and I stop fighting. God is being joyful and in me being happy. So the grief has a purpose, and it's to drive us to a good God. God knows that my earthly passions will never satisfy. God longs for me to know him, and God knows that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the story continues, and we know how this ends, and it's awesome. Jesus calls for Lazarus to come forth, and remarkably, he does. Scripture says in verse 44 that the man who died came out. (laughs) I wonder if he stunk. I don't know. Nine-year-old mental brain here. 
Um, but you know, as Lazarus comes out, the reality, brothers and sisters, is Lazarus would live to die yet again. This family would experience the grief. Grief would once again grip their hearts. They would once again know the pain of earthly loss. And yet, the God of grace desired to show them through the pain, through the sorrow, through the death, that there was hope. Through death would come life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You know, we're going to celebrate next week. A glorious resurrection was placed in the tomb, and in three days he rose again. And that ought to energize us. That ought to energize us. You know, as we think about this story here this morning, and I'm going to invite the worship team up. What about you? Where do you find yourself here in this story? Scripture records in verse 45 that many of them believed. They saw with fresh eyes. Their hearts were captivated in faith. But what about you? What is God calling you to this morning? Well, I think it's simple. I think God is calling all of us to know him. He wants us to really know him. To experience his power to know his character, to see God in him. He wants us to find eternal healing in his presence. And he wants us to rest in his preeminence. You know, God deserves more than merely a prominent place in our hearts. He is our Messiah. Love him. Serve him. Order the priorities of your life around him. And you will never go wrong. You will never come up empty because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your scriptures. We pray, dear God, that as we go our separate ways here this week, that you would help us to be anchored in you, dear God, relationships with you. God, I pray whatever trials we're facing right now, that you would remind us of who you are in the midst of them, that you'd help us to grab hold of the truth that you've ordained, to thank you for it, to forgive, to ask, how can I... What can I learn in the midst of this? And how can I obey you in this, God? We thank you, Father, for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We ask, dear God, that you would just continue to guide us and strengthen us now as we go our separate ways. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.